We're going to start a new series this morning, and before we get into that, uh, I wanted to just set it up a little bit before we get into the scripture. Um, with let's New Year, uh, this is our, our first sort of LCC service of the year since we were upstairs last week. So let me ask uh, a, a question that maybe we don't ask often enough. What is a Christian? Like, what is that? What, are we, what is a Christian? Um, Jesus didn't actually use the word Christian to describe his followers. He called them what? His disciples, right? His disciples. Uh, so the words ought to be interchangeable. I think it's uh, probably a sign of the times and a bad sign that we think of a disciple as maybe a, a super committed Christian and that's not how it should be. What is a disciple? The definition that we use here at Littleton Christian Church, and hopefully much of the body of Christ uses, comes from the Great Commission. Jesus tells his disciples to go, making more disciples of the nations by doing three things. Baptizing them, which means connecting them to God and one another in a covenant relationship. Second, teaching them to obey everything he commanded. And third, remembering that he is with them always to the very end of the age. So, what's a Christian? We might use that and say a Christian is a person who is covenantally connected to God and other believers through baptism, is learning to obey the commands of Jesus, and is constantly aware of Jesus' spiritual presence with us. That's, I think, I think you could do worse than that for a definition of what a Christian is. So the question we're going to focus on for the next seven weeks, including this week, is how do we remember that Jesus is with us? How do we remember his presence? And we're going to do that by, with the same practice that Jesus himself used to remember that the Father was with him. You know what Jesus did? He prayed the Psalms. That's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus remembered that the Father was with him. The Psalms, um, they are not at their best when we study them. Now, studying the Psalms is good. It's important to study the Psalms but they're not at their best when we study them. The Psalms are at their best when we use them, when we pray them, when we, when we put them in action in our life. The Psalms are like a shepherd's staff. They push on us. They push our hearts in the right direction when we're afraid, hungry, confused, hurt, lonely, amazed, betrayed, overwhelmed. If studying the Psalms, like we're going to do for the next seven weeks, doesn't lead to using them, then we will have wasted our time. Okay. So the Psalms we're going to chew on for these next seven weeks, we're not going to cover all 150. Uh, they all share a common idea. This, this Hebrew verb, chasa. Chasa. Say that with me. Chasa. Let's see. Isn't that if, if you're like getting over a cold like me, that's a good clearing, a good clearing moment. Chasa. This verb means to seek refuge or take shelter. David remembers that God is with him.
by taking shelter in God's presence. And all throughout the Psalms, you find this phrase, this prayer, I take shelter in you. He does it in many different circumstances. And so today, we're going to look at Psalm 5. And I'm going to read most of it aloud. Um, but at the end, we're going to take a play out of, the, out of our friends, you know, up in our attic, uh, out of their playbook. That's Bethany. Uh, so a lot of times when they read scripture together, there's parts that they read together. And so at the end of this psalm, when we get to verse 11, I'm going to invite you to read it with me. We'll read the last two verses together. Here's Psalm 5. Listen to what I say, Lord. Carefully consider my complaint. Pay attention to my cry for help, my King and my God, for I am praying to you. Lord, in the morning you will hear me. In the morning I will present my case to you and then wait expectantly for an answer. Certainly you are not a God who approves of evil. Evil people cannot dwell with you. Arrogant people cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who behave wickedly. You destroy liars. The Lord despises violent and deceitful people. But as for me, because of your great faithfulness, I will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple as I worship you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of those who wait to ambush me. Remove the obstacles in the way in which you are guiding me, for they do not speak the truth. Their stomachs are like the place of destruction, their throats like an open grave, their tongues like a steep slope leading into it. Condemn them, O God. May their own schemes be their downfall. Drive them away because of their many acts of insurrection, for they have rebelled against you. And now together. But may all who take shelter in you be happy. May they continually shout for joy. Shelter them so that those who are loyal to you may rejoice. Certainly you reward the godly, Lord. Like a shield, you protect them in your good favor. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, as we are quiet together, would you speak to us about your word? Our God and our King, as we pray to you, would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe. Transform us, Lord. Have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the guy we met at the beginning of this prayer is uh, struggling quite a bit. He's longing for God to help him with something very specific. It seems general, but it's, you know, it's one thing in the world, one big thing. It's slimy, lying, wicked, annoying people. He is frustrated, (laughs) to say the least. Uh, The most common circumstance that makes the Psalms cry out for God to shelter them throughout the Psalms is untrustworthy 
selfish, twisted, jerk, punk people like me. Like me. And maybe like some of you. Um, There's some debate about whether David, King David, actually wrote Psalm 5, the the original text, you know, the oldest uh, manuscripts we have say, a Psalm of David. Um, But critics uh, look at verse 7 that says, I will bow down toward your holy temple. And they say, wait a minute, Uh, there wasn't a temple when David was alive. His son Solomon built the temple after he died. Um, okay, so it's a psalm of David. That, that could either mean David wrote it, or it could mean readers and prayers of this psalm should pray it with David's life in mind. And what a life it was. When I read through David's story, and I, I, I just jumped back into it this week preparing for these psalms, you know, you can find it in First and Second Samuel I'm just exhausted by his life. David's life is, I mean, as a boy, you know, he references, he has to fight off wild animals to protect his flock. He's the youngest son of a bunch of brothers, and he's stuck with shepherd duty most of the time. As a teen, he, uh, he has to fight, you know, this giant man, Goliath, to protect Israel. As a young man, he has to fight for his life as he's hunted by King Saul and endangered on the run by the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Gathites, and others. At one point before becoming king, he's even fighting against Israel. He joins the Philistine army as a mercenary and is fighting against his own people. After he becomes king, he has to fight briefly against another guy who thinks he should be King Saul's successor. He fights against Saul's fierce general, Abner. He constantly fights the Philistines, the Ammonites, to secure Israel's territory. And, and the troubles aren't just out there. At home, it's worse. You know, you see David return from one particular victory, and he's dancing in the streets, you know, in his undergarments. Um, don't picture tidy whities you know, probably more than that, but... Um, and, you know, one of his wives is, is just so critical of him, and that, that makes trouble at home. Uh, later, one of his sons uh, sexually abuses one of his daughters that, uh, from two different moms. But, um, so another son named Absalom uh, takes justice into his own hands when he thinks dad's not doing enough. And so he kills the son who had abused the daughter, and that breaks Absalom and David's relationship forever. In fact, Absalom ends up, you know, building up a following and taking the, the uh, throne from his dad. David has to go on the run again as an older man, and he has to be in hiding from his son. Eventually, they, you know, there's a battle uh, to fight to, to get the throne back. Absalom dies in that battle. David is completely distraught, you know, two sons have died, a daughter's been abused, it's this terrible situation, and right after all that settles down, this other guy, you know, the the scripture just says, a wicked man named Sheba uh, convinces the northern tribes to rebel against David, saying, we have no part with King David, and um, 
when David has to fight once again to maintain his kingdom. That's like David's whole life. He's, he's never stops having to fight to, to keep the throne and to keep Israel safe. And after all that, the Jewish people say, King David, that's our model king. That's our guy. You know, that's the one after God's own heart. Now, Psalm 5 doesn't give us any scene in David's life, but I think that rebellion, Sheba's rebellion, it fits the bill. I mean, could you imagine? You're an old king, you've fought your whole life, and then this jerk guy does this, this public smear campaign against you, and 10 tribes rebel against you. It's a little preview of when the, the, the kingdom will split in two generations. David has no part with us, and most of the people agree. I mean, could you just imagine how exhausted and tired King David is? So, of course, David sought shelter in God. This psalm, Psalm 5, opens on a desperate, tormented man alone in his bed in the morning. When we suffer for a long time, it makes us feel very alone. And sometimes it leads to literally being alone. I had coffee this week with a man who uh, many years ago suffered a traumatic brain injury and first his acquaintances and then his friends and then his family all left him. He's alone. And he's a tough guy to deal with. You kind of get it. It, it, we, when we are dealing with tough people, we feel alone. When people don't make sense to us, when it's just not working out for us, we can feel very alone. This psalm opens with a plea for God to carefully consider my complaint. Um, the English can't do justice to that phrase in Hebrew. Uh, complaint is, is a Hebrew onomatopoeia. It's, it's the word haga. It's very similar to the other word we just said, but chaga, it's, 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 if you say it with a real groan, you can feel it, chaga, like ugh. That's what it is. It's not, it's not a complaint, it's a groan. It's a deep inward, too deep for words, groan. God, would you, I don't even have words. Consider my complaint. So what does David do in that groaning place? Well, first he puts God in his place. Verse 2 says, pay attention to me, my king and my God. Now that's a striking phrase. David's the king. David's the king. And yet here he is speaking to God saying, but you are my king. Being anointed king of Israel was perhaps the worst thing that could have happened to David, if you think about his life. I mean, his brothers turned on him, it's Saul turned on him. He, he, his life was kind of simple before. Shepherd, just, you know, living out in the fields. He spent the rest of his life fighting for his life. But he trusted Samuel, the prophet, believed that God had, in fact, called him to be king but he does not expect God will hear his groaning because he, David, is the king. He announces the cosmic truth that sets him free to be a righteous king. He is 
under the king. Maybe you are not a um, beleaguered monarch. Any royalty in the room? Okay. You're not tithing if you are. Um. <laughs> um. You guys are really generous. We don't need a king in the room. Maybe you're not a beleaguered monarch, but what weight do you bear in your life based on who you are? You carry a huge weight, each of you. The role you have in your family, your workplace maybe, maybe the obstacles that life has dealt you that you have to overcome, or the sense of regret that you don't have the roles you wanted in your life. (coughs) Excuse me. Do you cry out to God by virtue of your position? God, listen to me because I'm in this place. That would be like David saying, listen to me because I'm the king and you got to listen to me. Instead, we pray with David. We cry out to God by virtue of God's position. In fact, we can say the same thing as David. He is our king. It's level ground before God. We come to God on the same footing as David. (coughs) Excuse me. Like I said, getting over a cold. That's David's groaning, but he's confident, too, in this psalm. And it's kind of uncomfortable confidence to me. Um, Verses 4 through 6 of this psalm, they make me squirm. So if you made like a word map, you know, that cheesy thing that people did 10 years ago, here's all the, here's the words that we feel about you. It's like a birthday card, digital birthday card you sent someone. Brave, kind, whatever. In my word map for God, um, love and mercy and kindness, those are my big words. I love to emphasize that God is love. He's merciful. He draws near to the broken hearted. The more I understand both the concept of sin and the reality of my own sin, I don't come to God as a victim seeking justice. I come to him as a criminal seeking mercy. So that's why those words are a big deal for me. So it's hard for me to pray these verses. He says, (coughs) evil people cannot dwell with you. He says, You hate all who behave wickedly. You destroy liars. These verses do not come across as good news to me. Um, And it's pretty bad PR for God uh, in the the comfy U.S. of A. here. Um, Who in our inclusive culture wants to talk about a God who refuses to be around bad people? The more I reflect on my posture here, though, the more ridiculous it becomes. Uh, I, I was I hit like a brick by just a, a concept from an Old Testament commentator, Dr. Willem van Gameren. If your name is William, Willem van Gameren, you've got to be an Old Testament scholar. He says, deeply ingrained in Israel's belief system and developed in the wisdom literature is the conviction that the God of Israel hates evil in any form. Whereas other religions brought together good and evil at the level of the gods, God had revealed that evil exists apart from him and yet is under his sovereign control. 
The religion of Israel was revelatory. Uh, and of course, the more you think about it. Why is David so confident? Because he believed with his whole being that the God of Israel can see clearly. He knows what is good, and he knows what is evil. He's a God who created, loves, and preserves the good. Evil is always and forever a distortion of the good. He does not have to assume good intentions or work to remember someone's context. God knows all of that. He knows what is good and what is evil. And that's David's confidence. That's Israel's hope. God is a good and just judge. When they are a persecuted people, they know God is a good and just judge. He knows the difference and he sides with good against evil every time. Every time. As David gathers himself to defend against the rebellion of Sheba, carrying the grief of, of his son Abner, his son Amnon, his other son Absalom, uh, Tamar, his daughter, he can rest assured that the God who chose him to be king will defend his throne and do what's right. God's clear, perfect justice is a shelter for David. C.S. Lewis mused that the Christian often prays as the accused. We, we often pray as the one standing trial for the crime. That's what I do. The Jew, who was often hampered and oppressed, prayed more often as the victim. That's what you find in the Psalms. Here's how Lewis says it. Christians cry out for mercy instead of justice, whereas the Jewish people cried for justice instead of injustice. We need to remember, brothers and sisters, honesty and humility demand that we see ourselves in light of God's justice and, and continue to cry out for his mercy. But compassion demands that we pray, that we also cry out for justice against injustice. I mean, the work of clean water is the work of justice. That's us working for justice in the world. When you pray this psalm, you might not be praying on behalf of yourself. Maybe, maybe there's not someone who's doing a smear campaign against you. But you might be calling out for the women and children in India who are enslaved to a wicked debtor who keeps them in bonded labor for their entire lives. You may be praying on behalf of those who have been kidnapped and sold into the sex trade in Thailand. You may be praying for the Syrian refugee family who wanders unwanted by any country, just looking out to survive today. You may be praying with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed for justice, friends, waiting in torment for his friend Judas to lead a covert mob right to him. Friends, you, you, you might be praying to prepare your heart for the day when Jesus will send you out as a sheep among wolves. He promised his followers would be mocked and persecuted because of him. He promised that. I haven't really experienced that in my life. Very little. Maybe in high school when I wore dumb Christian t-shirts. But anyone would make fun of those t-shirts. Right? Though we often pray for mercy at the, right at the same moment that David prays for justice, 
we can confidently take shelter with David. For even though David's opponents are undeniably wicked, David does not point to his own righteousness as the reason God should give him justice. He doesn't say, God, they're wicked, but I'm good, so help me out. No, in verse 7, he says, but as for me, because of your great faithfulness, I will enter your house. Because of your great faithfulness. This is the greatest of Hebrew words. The ultimate divine characteristic in the Hebrew Bible, God's chesed. Chesed. Chesed is often translated loving kindness, mercy, just love. Here it's faithfulness. I mean, a word that holds all of those English concepts together, can, like that's stunning that that's who God is. It is his absolute faithfulness to his covenant promises. He's the God who chose his people in Abraham, who promised to bless them and bless the nations through them. He will keep his promises. David, many generations later, can say with confidence that God has been faithful even as he has to fight for his life. He enters God's house because God is faithful. And that's why we enter God's house. Not because we're faithful. He is. When everything else in myself and in the people around me seems unsteady, God has chesed. His character is my shelter. So, at the end we come to the actual use of the word take shelter in our, in our psalm. It's at the end, we read it together. Gosh, the more I think about David's life, the more stunning this image becomes. Here's a man who before he became Israel's king, he had to flee from King Saul. He's taking refuge with his loyal men in caves all the time. This is the guy who used stones and a sling to kill Goliath. He seeks the high rocky place for good battle position. I mean, this is a guy who became a master of guerrilla warfare by necessity because he's always on the run. He didn't have a big army with him. Harsh geography is David's shelter. He used it to his advantage. David remembers the faithfulness of God in a cave like Adullam or in the wilds of En Gedi. He looks at a creation where it looks harsh and he prays, in you I take shelter. As David uses the concept of shelter here, his tone shifts. At the beginning of this psalm, he is alone, alone in his bed, groaning. But when he takes shelter, he looks around, and he's not alone anymore. Notice how the pronouns shift. They go from, in the morning, I present my case to you, to may all who take shelter in you be happy. May they continually shout for joy. David was fleeing from King Saul, and he hides in this cave called Adullam. And while he's there, there's a group of 400 men who learn that King David is there. And they believe he's the true king. So they go and they join his cause. He's in the cave taking shelter, and the people gather with him. David's opponents, like Sheba, used lies, a smear campaign to try to take him down. Imagine how lonely that would feel. 
Who else could understand his plight? All right, you're not a beleaguered Israelite king, but I know that you experience despair at times that's every bit as isolating as David's. He was alone until he takes shelter. Uh, There's a theologian, Simon Chan. He wrote an important book with a super generic title. The title is Spiritual Theology. It's not titled to be a bestseller, per se. Um, He means the sort of theology that deals with our actual spiritual lives. Theology that when the, for when the rubber meets the road, like theology in real life. It, it deals with sort of the things you would expect, things like prayer and confession and meditation, making a rule of life, that's all good. But I think the climax of the book, I'm, I'm biased because I'm a pastor, the climax of the book is when Simon Chan recognizes that one practice is foundational to all the others. He says it's gathering for worship with other believers. That's what's foundational. When you do this, in Jesus' name, you experience, no matter how you feel, you experience an objective fact, and it's the people sitting around you. That they are here with you. You are not alone in this room. In fact, Simon Chan capitalizes the word fact as he's writing about the gathered church. It's the fact that we rest on. And he says this, he says, going to church despite the lack of feelings, despite the football game on TV, may actually be doing us more good spiritually than going to church when all is well. Why? Because that's where church becomes our adullam. We take refuge together. If you escape to distractions, whether it's a football game or something else, you will find that you are still alone afterwards. You actually might feel more alone afterward. But you've come here, and I hope that here you discover in this cave an encounter not just with these people, but with the true anointed king. You've gathered around the true king who is risking his life and giving his life to claim his kingdom. His greatest act of justice will not condemn you and send you out. It will restore your life and reconcile you with himself and with the people around you. That's what he offers us. That's what we celebrate at this table. So here in our cave, in this shelter, let's eat this simple meal together and remember that we're not alone. We've taken shelter in him together.